0: Hey, this is The Moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. The show business is my life ever since the great Tony Brown made me everything I am today. The show business has been good to be. Thank you yeah.
1: very much. <laughs> there you go. That's my, my We're done. That's Mr. Steve <laughs> Earl, everybody. And, uh, man, it's so... It, it, it's really exciting to me to get to talk to you. I met you once in a bar, but um, <laughs> we just shook hands quickly. And I, I said, did you really play on Desperados? And you said, I sang on it. Yeah. Uh, I asked you that question probably 20 years yeah, ago it was in me, a bar. It
0: was me, Sammy Smith, Emmylou Harris, and Rodney Crowell are the background vocals. I, I want to talk
1: about Rodney's album, too, the, the album oh, that he yeah. sings about, which just destroys me. Um, I know Rodney a little. I really like him. And I, I thought that these two albums really go together very well. I mean, your, your two yeah. albums, your Townsend Guy record, we and then constantly in Rodney's touch.
0: record. We were constantly attested when both records were being made. Rodney and I have a strange relationship because it began as me really gravitating towards him because he was only four and a half years older than I was, so he was the closest guy to my age until I met Carlene Carter, who was my age. And, and I just... So I kind of clung to him for the first nine months I was in Nashville. Then he moved away, and and he was always we were always got along and, and, and we were always connected mainly
1: by Guy. Right? Didn't you kind
0: of replace him in Guy's band. Yeah, I replaced him in Guy. Well, you know they didn't play many gigs. But when right. Guy used to band, Rodney was the bass player. If you were the kid, then you played bass and you talked to Susanna when Guy wasn't talking. And I, and I took over both of those duties for for Rodney when he moved to <laughs> That's California. Fantastic, man. Yeah, because Guy wasn't. Me and Guy Clark being having any kind of relationship at all is a miracle, simply because nobody talks. The only person I know I'm personally acquainted with that ever talk, was ever acquainted with that top more than me is Doug Somm. and and the guy talks. I've I witnessed Guy Clark nodding in response to a question on a radio interview. Once. Well, that's perfect. <laughs> that's just the way that he. Well, was. I want
1: to I want to talk <laughs> about all this, um, but I want to start, Steve, because um, this last year. Uh, and then we're going to get into, look, is, you just made an album, Steve just made an album called Guy that's a collection of songs by one of the greatest American songwriters, Guy Clark. And I want to talk about that and a bunch of other stuff. Um, although, you know, you've done so much, you have such a Catholicity of interests, pursuits, that we have to, I have to narrow the scope a little bit because otherwise this will ramble too much. But I do want to start by talking about, in the last year, I lost two very close friends. One, Dennis Shields, we dedicated the first episode this season of Billions to him, but the other, truly, someone is one of my best friends. I spoke to him on the phone every week for thirty years. Was Joe Hardy?
0: Yeah,
1: wow. And uh, Joe Hardy um, engineered Copperhead Row and then produced your next record with yeah, you, right? He did.
0: And and I learned more about um, recording probably in the two records I made with Joe Hardy than I did in any other period. You know, I mean Ray Kennedy and I worked together a long time. I learned a lot from him. But just my own stuff that I know anything about and the principles that I apply, and just a a general attitude towards technology, a lot of it comes from From Joe. And because he kind of knew where to stop, he knew what it would do, what it wouldn't do, but he was always pushing forward and he was always willing to try. Um, You you know, one of the things I say all the time, you know, and I use it as a producer and I use it as a co writer and a teacher, and that's the idea of. Ham and eggs, and that's a Joe Hardy principle. You've heard this, I'm yeah, sure. Say and it, though. the reason it happened was, in my case, was you know, that big boom on the front of Copperhead Road at the end oh, of the mandolin yes, I do. What that is is just uh, it, it sounds like we dropped a piano, but what it actually is. Is one kick drum beat that we just blew over onto another. T- we put it on the Fairlight, just that was the only kind of that was the sampler that was there. Yes. and we put it onto a Fairlight Series 3 then put it back on the tape and just started putting effects on it to see what it would do and how big we could make it. And he just he liked for me to go. This was you know we, there was automation, but he still liked to do a lot of things live and, and in the middle of a mix and like the artists and there grabbing faders and it was but kind of the last time I did that and and I. Uh, uh, I just, uh, he said. well, you you know, I said maybe a little bit more, and it was this weird gated reverb that we had on it. And he goes, it was the '80s. There was a lot of reverb. And he goes, and the drums were really loud. And he said, he said, would well, you do it? You do to you to you know. So I reached up and when it and when <laughs> I pushed it up, and I think I probably pushed it all at the top of the favor. And he goes, God. and he. He just like roared, like sat back in his chair, his head back and belly laughed. And I said, I said, Oh man, I thought too much. He goes, No, no, man, that's perfect. That's the way it's going to be. He says, Man, he says, You remind me of. Um, a, the a plate of ham and eggs and i said what the fuck are you talking about he said he said well not it's it's, it's all about life says so the chicken is involved the pig is committed, committed. <laughs> and you're committed, and you're committed. <laughs> you're yeah, so that was well, the, yeah i, I hadn't properly
1: uh, eulogized joe on here and and uh i'll just say it for one sec this is a guy who was born in the hills of kentucky um, basically self-educated was a brilliant man and uh a great friend and and Spoke of you, Steve, so fucking highly. And I hardly
0: saw him the last, know. you know, like twenty years of his life. I don't think I saw him once. And it's weird because Billy Gibbons and I had this. He saw him a lot, and that's how I kept up with Joe. Is I would see Bill, and 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 uh, we, we saw him. Billy and I were inducted into the Texas Heritage Songwriters Hall of Fame together, and and so that was just. Um, I'm sure you guys so were talking about it. It was in January, talking. we were talking about well, it. And Billy and that's I... That's we talked about that night, so...
1: Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, well, yeah. well, we'll go on, but I just want to say to anyone out there, go find some Joe Hardy records today. As you're listening to Steve's records, go find records that Joe Hardy produced or engineered and... Well, just,
0: and you can start with it in the middle of the whole thing when, when Joe Hardy becomes Joe Hardy is just keeping... He made Eliminator and Afterburner, so <laughs> <laughs> right there. that's Yeah, like.
1: and, um, and engineered... Um, uh, the replacements, please to meet me and Copperhead Road, and yeah. so yeah. you, you want to get in there and, and check those those things out. And lastly, about this, I'll say Gibbons and I—you can't meet two more different people than than Billy Gibbons and me—and uh, we were just to to get an idea of how this guy Joe Hardy mattered so much. Um, me and Billy and the drummer Greg Morrow, who's a born again Christian. Greg Mar- I'm an and, atheist. And Greg one love, of my best I, mean, I love he's Greg.
0: He's my go to drummer in Nashville. I, I love Greg.
1: Yeah. Um, and so, me and Greg and Billy, the three of us who are wildly different, we're just texting the whole time, Joe. You know, he brought the three of us wow. together. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, anyway, that's all. I just wanted to do that. some emphasis. Now, getting on to this. Listen to this guy album, Steve. It It seems to me, and then the Towns record too, that you are after the real American songbook here. That, because I'm thinking of this, you know, when Dylan wrote the liner notes to World Gone Wrong, um, which is his cover album of like the Mississippi Sheiks and all those blues bands. He wrote in those liner liner notes, there won't be songs like these anymore. Factually, there aren't any now. And this seems to me to be like the unstated point you're kind of making.
0: Um, yeah, I mean, I was lucky and so I knew these two guys, so so I had the advantage at a very young age of the difference between influences that came off of records, you know, to be people I could sit across the room from. That's happened with, with Towns at seventeen. And there were actually a few guys that were pretty good that nobody ever heard of before that, but Towns was the first I didn't know Towns was any less famous than Bob Dylan. His records were in the same record shops and it took me a long time to figure that out. And Um, it's just, you know, I, I, people are always saying, you know, reminding me that, uh, well, you said that, that you'd stand on Bob Dylan's coffee table and say that Towns Van was the best songwriter in the world. I didn't believe that Towns was a better songwriter than Bob Dylan. I I believe that Bob Dylan invented our job and trust me, Towns Van and Guy Clark were chasing Bob Dylan and, and that's what they were, they were doing what they were doing because of Bob Dylan. End of story. Bob didn't need the help, and I said that for a sticker for a record of Towns' is that he made after I the first record he made after I became semi-famous, and so I got asked to do that. Sure. So, and, and I'm I have the curse of being quotable, and 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 part of that is making stuff up. But as you go But what I'm getting along, to but. is
1: though that the way that Dylan talked about the songs of those blues acts of the '30s and '40s, it seems to me those old songs. I've, I've thought a lot about what he meant when he said. Songs like these don't exist anymore. And and how I interpret it is people like the people who wrote those songs, the era in which those songs were written, created a sort of hard-won wisdom that is different than what's happening now. And it seems to me when I listen to these two albums, you're choosing songs. I think of Randall Knife. I think of – you're choosing songs that feel – La even La Freeway, Desperados, they feel like songs that uh, have always been here and will always. be. There's a yeah. sturdiness,
0: and they've always felt that way to me. I heard <coughs> La Freeway before I even met Guy. I was already singing La Freeway, Desperados, sure. waiting for a train, of old time feeling because I learned them from Jerry Jeff before Walker. Old Number One. Even yeah, oh yeah, because I was there for Old Number One. I mean, for half of it, it was there were half of Old Number One is, is recordings. Um, That were made in the can, a combination of demos and attempts at a studio album that were made before I got there. The other half, I, I was around and sitting in the studio when they were recorded. I, Rita Ballou, I was sitting there, and that was a demo. And it's Dick Feller on guitar, Gary B. White on bass, who wrote I Think I'm Gonna Love You for a Long, Long Time and was in Circus Maximus with Jerry Jeff Walker. That's the Houston connection. That's how Jerry Jeff Walker found the jester in Houston, was Gary B. White, because he, he was connected? from there. Oh, yeah. I, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah, Amazing. I, no, that was a deal. Jerry Jeff lived in the the well, town's had an apartment above a coffee house called Sand Mountain on Richmond Avenue in the Montrose in Houston. I played there at the end, but hardly anybody went by the time I started going there. But Guy Towns, all these guys played there. Jerry Jeff stayed in that apartment, and I'm pretty sure Mr. Bojangles was written in that apartment in Houston. You know, and uh, he always says, "I've got him. I've gotten him to admit it was Houston, but I have never been able to get him to admit really? it's that room." <laughs> I, have you ever that. heard him?
1: Have you ever asked him about Sammy Davis's version of the song? If he liked it?
0: Oh, he sure he liked
1: it. He bought him a house. He, he,
0: I can remember him sit, specifically sitting up. We were opening. I was playing bass for a guy we were opening for Jerry Jeff at Vanderbilt. And I can remember some place we were that night, probably this horrible after-hours club uh, that was where they, that was just room for bumper pool tables. So you played bumper pool and drank after hours there. What was it called? But um, it was like out by the fairgrounds. I heard him say, "I can tell you everywhere the Sammy Davis Jr. has been in the last three years by looking at my royalty <laughs> oh, statements," so and he was very proud of
1: that. So. Oh, that's awesome! Yeah, I happen to love Sam. I think Sammy's version of it is just classic. Sammy and amazing. Davis. I
0: mean, look the like people like us know about it from the nitty gritty dirt band, probably originally. That was the big hit on the radio. But the rest of the world knows about it because of Sammy Davis Jr. End of story. It's well, a Sammy Davis Jr. song to my mother and father's generation.
1: Right, yeah, of course it is, because the uh I mean he was a song interpreter, which is what you're 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 doing here. Um what do you think it was though about Guy and Towns that enabled them to write these kind of songs that that you just feel like are going to last for such a because long time. Because they both saw both
0: Manslips Manslipscomb and, and Lightning Hopkins in the same room at the same that's, time that's This on is what I'm trying one to get occasion. to. The, what I'm and trying and to so get to I, is that they're... I, I got there just in time to see that myself.
1: So. They, that's amazing. They're an extension of the time of the old blues artists. Yeah. They,
0: they're from Texas, so there's some luck involved there. So they were in the right place at the right time. Houston is... Austin can keep doing what it's doing for a hundred years, but I still believe with all my heart that Houston's, at least in so far as rock and roll is concerned, is the musical heart of Texas, and it always has been. Really, I, I still, to, you think? I, oh yeah, I mean, it's like it, there's just something about it. It's a real city. It's a city you got to have a car in. But it's a closer, way closer to a real city than Austin is. Austin's kind of made up and unrecognizable to me. You know, now it's not what it was. Austin was really cool, but it was way smaller and way friendlier than it is now. Uh, um,
1: yeah. I, I, oh, you don't think it's why it's too hip now to be no, friendly? No, it's just too. It's just you.
0: Uh, I, I'm a lot of being in New York for 14 years is um, I've gotten. I feel very fortunate not to have to have a car. So when I'm in Austin, you spend so much of your life in the car, whether you're driving it or or calling it on an app. You spend your whole life in the car there. Yeah, I'm just over that. I, I, I loved California. Because <clears throat> I rode a motorcycle most of the time, but I've I've gotten lost my nerve where motorcycles are concerned. I just figured out after I got sober, I've used eight of my nine lives, and I had a motorcycle from fourteen to forty, and I haven't had one since because I just made that decision that maybe I shouldn't put. And also, I haven't had to have a conversation with a white supremacist since I quit hanging out in Harley Davidson. So that's, that's kind of good. That's <laughs> another quote. There, that's another Steve go. Earl yeah, quote
1: yeah. that people are gonna. So. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I watched Heart One Highways for the fourth time last night, you right. know, and uh, seeing Guy sing that song at the at the opening of it. He sings L.A. Freeway as, as the opening of Heart One. Right. I don't know how many times you've gone back and watched, but, you know, I'm sure you were in the room that he was singing it. I was it. there when that, right. was, that, when uh, that was filmed. I'm there, sure every it, minute of that film that was filmed in Nashville, I was
0: in it sitting in the room. So
1: center. you were there when Guy's singing that song. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned on the liner notes he was 33 years old then, so he was either 33 or 34 when 34, probably. Let's see, that's because that was one year late. It's this that was he one. He was year 33 l- when we met. He's
0: I, I, uh, he, he's 34 by this time because that's what you're seeing in, on and where we're
1: all sitting around the table is Christmas Eve, 1975. Right. That's all. This is not. This is before you guys are revealed there. This is him just with that microphone singing um, "L.A. Freeway" and. It's amazing to me that he was only thirty-three or thirty-four. Because it is
0: to me too, I mean because that that was the big shock for me.
1: But he also just reads like a man in a way that people of our generation hardly of it. He reads like a character out of time. Uh, uh, is that how he seemed
0: to uh, you? Yeah, sure. A girlfriend of mine years ago who was way younger and and you know, she knew about Guy Clark from her father, literally, right. and but she grew up in Texas. Um, described him as majestic, yeah. and, and that that that's a pretty good that's a pretty good description. He, there was something about guy looked like he ought to be on you know money or a stamp or something. He was one of those guys. He just kind of
1: but, but it, incredible. Yeah, but well, he was like an oak tree or something. Yeah, it,
0: it looked like to me how quiet he was had a lot to do with it that he that he could sit for long periods of time without moving which I still can't do myself. I mean, well, I can when I meditate, but that's the only time. And and me too. It, it takes it takes literally, when I do TM, that's that, when I yeah, can do yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. For me it's, it's 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 yoga and a and a system of mindful meditation that's attached to that. So, it's not it's in it to me forever to learn how to do that. He he came I think um what's different about guy and almost anybody I know and what I gravitated towards cuz it's kind of what I was I had the most. I leaned towards being the kind of writer that Guy was, rather than the kind of writer that Towns was. What Guy wrote, the best of his work, was essentially prose that just happened to rhyme. Now it was poetic, and 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 he he was striving for more poetic stuff, just like I am. I'm always prouder of my old friend the blues, or. You know, well, then but my friend, I the, wrote Times
1: Prayer Standing on my head when I was 18. But my, my old friend, The Blues, <coughs> is more of a town song than a guy song. Yeah, melodically, it is. A- I absolutely. think. That's more of a town's Van it's, a, song. it's me trying to be Willie Nelson. Sure. Is well, it is. I, I <laughs> want to talk com- about Merlin Willie, too. Totally was, yeah, but, well, you brought up your songs as opposed to their songs. And I noticed something else that I haven't heard anyone ask you about, which is there's a hopelessness in the worldview. Of their songs, small kindnesses, definitely in Towns' But even in Guy's songs, I mean, Desperados, which is the most sentimental of them. The old man's dying, and he's taking the lessons, but he's moving on. L.A. Freeway, there's a, or maybe a better word is a resignation, right? He's yeah. not. There's a resignation. Um I mean, some of the later songs. I mean, the guitar. Uh, there's there's uh, this idea of you know who knows what what that really is about. Well, but, that that but was me, the
0: that's Guy's poetic phase when you start hearing. He's still telling stories because he doesn't know how to do anything else but create a story with the beginning, and the middle, of an end. That's that's in his DNA. But he starts coming up with these big idioms, like based on you know Picasso's mandolin. Yeah, that 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 whole concept and and he, visual art influenced him a lot because he lived with a painter right. who was incredible. And, and you know, I get mad at Susanna sometimes. I was mad at her when she was alive, and I'm still mad at her because she didn't paint more than she did. Sometimes I think she slacked off and, and slummed with us songwriters when she should have been painting someone's more, gotta, more than she to Someone's
1: got to make um, a play about her, because, her and Guy because – even Rodney on his record, the first line of that song is, you know, or, or one of the first lines is, I fell in love with a girl named Susanna, but, and, right. and it's that the guy got there for, you know, somehow yeah. all you guys seem to be... we were all in love with her. In now, love Every with single her. one of us. Now, now that, we, the,
0: I've, I've often said that I learned how to write songs from, from Towns and Guy Clark, and there were other people, Rodney, there was Richard Dobson, there was Steve Young, there was, you know, oh, I had songwriter. a lot of teachers, but those were the two principal ones, and And uh, for me, just because I met them first and uh, the the Texas connection, but we all learned to carry ourselves as artists from Susanna. She had this, we were, when we were sitting around, there was no place, there's two places to play in Nashville. You can only play them so much. And so we got together at John Lomax's house or Jim McGuire's photography studio you know, before I got to town, a guy in Susanna's place, but they'd moved to the country by the time I got there, just before I got there. So, and we would play the guitar, we would just play songs and try to impress each other with whatever we had written. And uh, we were really after a while. If you've been in that, it was a salon. That's I. Yeah, I it it was Gertrude Donald Stein. On me I had the, read. Yes. I had read Hemingway. You know, uh, uh, by that time, everything everything he had ever written and read of everything I could find about him. And I knew that's what I was in. That I that I, how lucky I was. But and it ended up being Susanna. You were playing the songs for.
1: As she was much the person
0: as... we were trying to impress because she was because we were post Bob Dylan songwriters. We were making art on purpose. I got in this headbanging contest with with Peter Geramick on a panel once because he thinks Bob Dylan's overrated and and the, he thinks that Robert Johnson Was every bit as you know a big a deal as Bob Dylan? He is. It is about the songs, but I think the difference is is that Robert Johnson came that way. It's uh, Cole Porter came that way, and he was slumming to keep from having to write serious literature or classical music because he very few guys of his era wrote both. You know, and and he. uh, But I think uh, Bob did it on purpose. Bob was reading, knew that the moment had come to elevate rock and roll to – an art form and I, and he knew it was coming from folk music and he knew, he knew how to do it. i really, truly believe that he's always, he's, he's he showed you guys that this existed. Absolutely. that, and that then there, he took all the air out of the room and we've all been struggling around on that room but, ever but, since. But don't you
1: think, but, <laughs> but don't you think, right, wait, I have two questions I got to ask. I'm going to write down the one because okay, yeah. related to this, but what I was going to say though, is those guys had a resignation running through their music towns. Cause the alcoholism and the idea that he was waiting around to die. Guy, because his worldview was such, even in his first song he ever wrote, "Step inside this house." There's this idea that the guitar matters more than the possibility of love. All that stuff. Your first song and your first album is a call, a personal call to action. Is, has hope in it. Has, in fact, ambition. Well, you know, oh, Guitar Town
0: exists because I've been in Nashville. I've written a lot of songs. Yes, and some of them were really good, and some of them I recorded later. But I was determined. I went to see Bruce Springsteen on the Born in the USA right. tour, and he walked out. I was sort of lost because I'd had a record deal, and I and after releasing songs that I'd written and they'd failed, then I did one session that Emory Gordy produced with a bunch of players. Richard Bennett was among them, who ended up being the heart of Guitar Town, But so it wasn't a waste of time. But I had lost faith in myself as a writer, so I recorded one of my songs, one of John Hyatt's, one of Dennis Lindy's, and uh, one of... Um, who else? Um... But I just, uh, you know, I kind of lost faith in myself as a writer. Then I saw Springsteen, and he walked out, and he played Born in the USA. And then then I remembered... First record I bought was Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, right. and I came up in the era of a concept album. When he opened the show with that, and I already had the record, because this is 85, but, you know, there the, was the... I saw that tour, too. I last two-thirds of the tour. I was know? at that tour, yes. I went home and I wrote Guitar Town, literally the next morning. And then I wrote Down the Road to Finish, and I knew I had the beginning and the middle of the record, and then I filled in the gaps. And I wrote it to be an album that I didn't have a record deal for yet. Right. And it got me a record deal, and it got me but, a career. But it, it,
1: it, yeah, how did you take the... <clears throat> lessons. So it was Bruce, this is what I wanted to ask. It's like, there's, those two guys are the fathers in a way, the father and, you know, they're the parents, but, but something happened that allowed you to have, even though you were, you know, when one looks at your life and the rest of the records, obviously you were wrestling with demons as they were. What do you think allowed you to do something that had hope in it? Fire in it? I don't
0: know. I just don't have much tolerance for a lack of hope, uh, you know, and I don't, uh, towns I can deal with. Um, Guy, I could deal I never thought about Guy as being hopeless. I don't think that's what it is. I think what Guy's is I, it, what what am I feeling when I'm I think he's he's he was nostalgic when he was thirty-three. I think he I think he sees uh, for the, a time past. Yeah, yes. I think he sees this value and stuff in his past that made him a Texan and made him why he left. What me, Newberry, um, Towns and Guy have in common. Well, Towns did go back from time to time, but but Newberry and Guy and I and Christopherson, we all are Texans and there's something about Texas and Texas on when all of us left and none of us ever went back and never and us ever really considered going back. So I don't know. He he with him it was about I think he just felt he, he he told me one time songs aren't finished till you play them for people. So he he was a singer songwriter. He wasn't there to write the next Ronnie Millsap record. He was okay if Ronnie Millsap recorded this song and he considered it considered yes. to be a financial pleasure, as Kinky Friedman says. But he was there to make records and to go out and write songs to go out and sing for people. He just was just wanted to be subsidized. But there was a
1: different kind of fire in your belly. It seems like it's, or I don't know. I just think
0: I'm I am. Um, I don't know. A lot of the reason I survived as long as I did, even though drugs and alcohol were always a thing for me and always a problem for me, was amb- was ambition. I really did feel like I had something to say, and I, I I grew up when there was no question about whether you could change the world with music, and I still believe that you can. And and, and did those guys? Cha- think I wanted
1: to change the world. And those guys. That so you just hit it right. It is that ambition thing. That's what's not in. That is what's not in guys' music, other than an ambition to. Tell you this story, right? And ambition yeah, to make and you the, understand this story, and to make sure story. that it
0: stays art. And I think, yes, I think I was a little, you know, and and I, I may have been wrong. And and I think, guys, sometimes. Judged that I was wrong when I started making rock records, he didn't really know what to think about it, and he definitely thought I was too loud. <laughs> so, Did he think Copperhead
1: Road was a rock record? Uh,
0: you know, we've never talked. We uh, this is weird because I'm putting together the show for the tour right now, and I don't know what he thought about Copperhead Road. I know what he liked. I know his favorite songs of mine were the Mercenary song, which is one of the first songs I wrote after I got to Nashville. Tom Ames Fair, Ben McCullough. Was he alive and, when and, you wrote and, Outlaw?
1: Was he alive when you wrote Outlaw? No, no, because he would have loved that song. Yeah. I think. I think I think he would have loved that. Yeah, song.
0: maybe, maybe. But I think I think the deal is I always trust. I I did know how the music business worked. I hung out with Bill Hall and you know publishers and, and and Bob Beckham. I could I could count as a friend. And I listened to those guys. I went to lunch with those guys and I listened to them about the business. So I wasn't afraid of the business. I wasn't suspicious of it. I knew very early on that the only reason that guys like us got to do what we did is because there was so much money. In, I owe my whole career to Michael Jackson. Uh, my first label was Epic. I got signed with Thriller money. You know, they they could take a chance on something off the wall like a three piece rockabilly band I had at the yes. time in Nashville, uh, but, because but they had all this a, money.
1: There's something about a, a worldview because somebody who was 33 or 34 and 75 was born in the 40s in the shadow of the depression, right. They were born into a hard world. You were born. I was born. You're a little older yes, than that I am. Could into a, be d- it yeah. in a world that showed you, well, you can be a thing you dream of. That was out True. there, right? And yeah. I don't you think that has something to do with the mindset. Maybe.
0: <clears throat> Maybe, but but guys' generation also had the the largest number of people that to come from nothing and get to go to college because of the GI Bill. Bill. Yes. So. You know, that works both ways. My brother, who's thirteen months younger than I, is one of the last GI Bill educated people out there and he managed airports all over he was a controller until the strike. And then he re educated himself. He still until had Reagan the, broke the union. He was in the Air Force yeah. the last year of the Vietnam War, so he qualified for the bill. So that was that's, yes, that's what that, it boiled down to. So so he went back to school. And he managed airports, and, and, and the last one was in Colorado Springs. He runs an av- World War Two Aviation Museum in Colorado Springs now.
1: Really? Yeah, yeah. Do, do people? Do you guys look alike? Do people ever think? No, he did. There's
0: the kids in my family. There's the there's the the blonde ones and the not blonde ones. I'm one of the not blonde and ones, he's and I've got one, one sister that's kind of in between. He's a blonde one. He looks more like my mom. So uh, I look wh- exactly like my father. Oh, really? Oh, it's stunning. It's 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 frightening. We see pictures of me now and my dad. Um, and when he was in his 50s and 60s, it, it looks exactly like me.
1: Hey, let's talk about Zip Recruiter and then we'll get back to our combo with Steve Earle. I still kind of can't believe I'm talking to Steve Earle. Too fun. Um, so he, here's the thing. I'm, I'm actually going through this now. Dave and I are figuring out how to hire for the next season of Billions. We're talking about uh, writers and what we want the writer's room to look like. And um, I wish there were something like Zip Recruiter for um, what I do in the writer's room. Because it's clear, like hiring is so difficult. Finding the right fit, getting the right recommendations, knowing that this is the kind of person who we need is almost impossible. One of the hardest things uh, that we try to do. On the other hand, ZipRecruiter makes, in almost every industry, makes it so much easier easier. I mean, they send your job to over 100 of the web's leading job boards, but they don't stop there. They have this powerful matching technology. ZipRecruiter scans thousands of resumes finds people with the right experience and invites them to apply for your job. As the applications come in, ZipRecruiter analyzes each one and spotlights the top candidates so you never miss a great match. Here's how effective ZipRecruiter is. Four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site in the first day, and they identify what a quality candidate is. It's not ZipRecruiter saying that; it's, it's the buyer, it's the the job hire who says it. And right now, my listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address: ZipRecruiter.com/slash/moment. That's ZipRecruiter.com/slash/m-o-m-e-n-t. ZipRecruiter.com/slash/moment. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. When you mentioned Bob as sort of the one who showed you the way, too, by his work, Uh, but but Buddy Holly did it before Bob, didn't he? And there's some Buddy Holly on Guitar Town, Uh, too, I I think. Or did he not matter to you? Was that just received from Texas? Was the Buddy Holly in you more just like, hey, we all grew up around the same place? I'm a Beatles guy, and, and they were Buddy Holly guys. So
0: just like I'm... I backtracked from Creedence Clearwater Revival's version of, of, of um, "That's All Right, Mama" to the to, to the Sun Elvis records now. Elvis, after he got out of the army, I knew chapter and verse and all the movies and all that stuff. And it was all about Elvis until my uncle, who was five years older, and called me and said, you got to watch the Ed Sullivan show and that the was the when Beatles. I was nine years old. And it was over at that point. So, Buddy There was no a- chance
1: of me being anything else after that. Buddy wasn't a big thing to you.
0: I backtracked him. I, he died when I was three, you know, and I, I knew Peggy Sue and I knew those songs. I just didn't gravitate towards it, you know, all the guy all my West Texas friends, it's all about Buddy Holly. I did have to... my brother managed the Lubbock Airport for a while and I did have to ask him, "Why is the last thing you see when you head for an airplane a, a, a big life-size <laughs> right, so cut funny. out of Buddy you know, Holly?" He's from there, Freaks man. What are you do? God, I love uh, those deals.
1: So, w- when I when I when I think about the time and with with guy and, and towns uh the the heartland highways time, I wrote down here that the songs felt earned somehow. Um you see Guy working on that guitar. You see Town singing that song to the old man. And it's hard to imagine that scene, Towns playing, waiting around to die for that 75-year-old man whose parents were probably, you know, grandparents certainly were slaves. Right. And... uh it feels oh, like... I think Uncle Seymour's parents might have been... Maybe, his, 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 maybe his boss, that was his boss, name? Then, what yeah. was his name? Uh,
0: Seymour Washington. He was a itinerant blacksmith that traveled around the hill country in Texas with everything but the anvil on his back and went to different people's ranches and shoot horses. That's what he did for And a
1: when you watch that movie, right, you're thinking about the power of these songs because that's what these records... As I listen to these records, uh, I'm struck over and over again by how these songs feel like they're... They're carved out of the side of a mountain or something. There, right. and and that that moment of playing waiting around to dive for that for Seymour.
0: Were you there for that or no. were you knew that, him? The, the reason that, that they were down there is is the people that made the film um, pissed Guy off. We we they wanted Guy they wanted Guy performing on stage at the exit in, and that's in the movie. But. So what we did is we – Guy went to Tracy Nelson, who was a friend, and asked her permission, you know, asked if she could get us on the bill. You know, Travis Rivers was her manager, and he and Guy were very close. And got Guy on the bill to open for Tracy that night. So Tra- he goes and plays a set, and they swore that they would be, you know, flies on the wall. And they, they, they came, ruined the whole They set up a bunch of lights, and they pissed Tracy off. <clears throat> and I, I, you know, I, I love Tracy Nelson, and she's another one of my teachers. But you don't want to piss Tracy Nelson <laughs> off. So, I <clears throat> guy was so mad about it. He goes, by that time, you know, towns had settled into that thing in Clarksville, and we knew that was dark and, and it was scary because that neighborhood in those days. Now it's, you know, it's a gentrified neighborhood that Jerry Jeff Walker and 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 Sean Coven live in, but it's it's not. Um, you know, then it was dirt roads. It would look like you were in Kingston, Jamaica, and it was right up there at the top of the hill above what's all. That's six, where he's playing the song. That's where he's that's playing where, that, that song. An, that's for an that guy. Uncle
1: Seymour's trailer, which was
0: next to Towns' trailer. There was one um, gentrified new structure that had been built there. The, the, Clarksville was originally the name of you know what they used to call an N-word town that was built by freedmen after the Civil War that worked on the Capitol grounds that worked and worked for, for politicians and they made themselves a little community there by that time it had degenerated into some, some hippies lived there and some older black folks and there was heroin there Right. And uh, one, one person, Minor Wilson, who was Guy's partner in the guitar shop that he owned in San Francisco and traveled out there with him, when he came back to Austin, he bought a little lot there. And, and a, just before that, that was filmed, Minor had finished building himself a house there. It kind of looked like a yard up at the top of the hill. But the rest of it was, you just sworn you were in, you know, just like um, Haiti or something. But you're it watching was, that moment like and you're, world you country.
1: feel connected to this. In watching Uncle Seymour's reaction... It's almost like you feel connected to this thing that had gone back centuries with the music. Yeah,
0: he he worried about towns a lot and towns is drinking and that's what he's crying about when when he's when towns sings waiting around to die to uncle Seymour Seymour's taking it absolutely literally that it's
1: towns talking and not a character in that song. And he's ta- and he's taking it literally. It's not about you're saying it's not it's not about everything Seymour's seen because when you're watching it, what it feels like is
0: It's about Towns and it's about what he's been watching Towns do in the in the in the nine months or a year that he's known
1: him and watching Towns disintegrate. Right. And he loved Towns, he really did. So. What What do you think it is about Guy and Towns that made them? Worked that hard at the songwriting, especially Towns, who or did come just flow for Towns. Towns, Towns guy worked hard. So Towns what was it? did it? I right. don't think he
0: worked that hard. So at what it. was
1: it? So that's the Kerouac thing. So what do you think it was in Guy? Is it the same thing that makes him? Because that moment when he's fixing the guitar in 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 the movie is so beautiful, and you see this guy. You want to hear? You want to hear a, yeah, hear a, a funny reveal yes, about please. Tell that?
0: Tell me. We we it's were fake? we were not completely sober in any of that movie, and neither was Guy. Guy smoked a lot of pot in those days. We all did, and and. He goes through that whole thing and explains. He does the repair and he does a beautiful job. He strings the guitar and then he picks it up and he's put the strings on backwards. No, and that <laughs> really that, that, yeah, at the end of it, that's off camera. You don't see it. But that's he the whole thing. He didn't tell them. He told me later. And, oh sure. And said, said the whole thing that he was stoned. So, that, Is so, so mad, stoned I, that I strung that.
1: I strung that whole song, guitar backwards. But uh, but you're watching him work on that. There's a craftsman. I mean, what what's that? Sh- it seems to me there's something tied into the way he would work with the wood and the way he would write There absolutely was. Do he, you feel he, he, that connection?
0: Yeah, absolutely. That that's the, if you if you I don't know if you've seen a hard copy of, of of Guy yet, but the artwork on the inside there's like, you know, there's a picture of me and Guy relatively recently at Hardly Strictly Bluegrass, a picture of us a long time ago. And actually it's from, there's it's a still from Hartland Highways. And and then there's pictures of my me and my band but then the rest of the borders are decorated besides with Tony Fitzpatrick's art which my albums always are guys workbench at his house in Nashville and all the tools they are just he he used to say guitars people named their guitars and stuff it irritated him he said they're tools but he was he 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 was more emotionally attached to them than he admitted um, he had more romance he in him got than mad he wanted to he let got, on, you think. He got mad at, at Jerry Jeff for breaking them because Jerry Jeff used to break guitars at one the point. Guy would make guitars for Jerry no, Jeff. No, no and Jerry he'd break Jeff them? Just, would just break any, every nice acoustic guitar right. Jerry Jeff had for a period of there. He broke and and he broke he tore up hats and he and he he stomped on hats and he broke he broke guitars. It was just something he did. He he grew out of it. Um but he, he broke one that I traded um uh, I had a nineteen when I got to Nashville, I literally had a japanese guitar i had a I'd had a d eighteen a martin d eighteen that but, line
1: is in guitar type but the, ne- yeah,
0: absolutely. Know. the I'm neck went about. south. And I couldn't get it fixed in San Antonio, so I traded it straight across for an Alvarez Yari because that's what I get. And I had gigs and I had to play. So when I got to Nashville, I was embarrassed because I had the only Japanese guitar in the salon. So I saved, scrimped and saved and scrimped and saved and starved my poor little wife to death and bought um, like a 1957, I think J45 from George Green, which they were only. I think I paid 250 dollars for that guitar. You know, Gibson's just weren't, hadn't gotten expensive yet. And I had it for maybe six months, and Jerry Jeff played it one night over at Maguire's. Oh, and he decided, ruined it? He decided he wanted it. Uh. So he comes and wakes. We, we Sandy and I go to bed because she's got to go to work. And I, you know, all of a sudden then somebody knocks on the door and it's, it's Guy and Susanna and Jerry, Jeff and Susan. They wake us up and then they, you don't get right to the point. We just, I'm, I'm sitting, I'm getting out of bed, getting guitars out. And, hey, Can I see that Gibson of yours? And we got out and we played it back and forth and Jerry, Jeff got out this J 65, J 50. The bridge had been replaced with a non-adjustable bridge, which people just did in those days. It made them better guitars, but it made them less original. And he gives it to me and I'm playing it. And he goes, you like that guitar? I said, yeah, I like it. He says, I'll give you a. I'll give you $350 and that guitar for your guitar. And I'd only paid 250 for it. And And I said, no. Nah. And, and I, got, I broke out with integrity, and I really loved the guitar. And then Guy like was back, like shaking his head like I was an idiot. Oh, he it was? Guy thought you were wrong? I, oh, yeah, absolutely. And Jerry just said, 500 And then Guy goes, looked at me like, I'm never going to speak to you again <laughs> if you walk away for this deal. So I did it. I, I traded it, and I, I had that J50 until sometime in the 80s i was really high and I said, I said i love you man and gave it to my guitar player and um and uh, i don't know i haven't i don't know what happened to it after that uh but but jerry jeff had the j45 for about another six months and then he broke it and it was at a band meeting evidently at gary nunn's house is where he broke it because i was at gary nunn's house when I was there touring with a guy in Austin and it was hanging on the wall in pieces held together only no. by the strings with a little sign that said, your worst fear is realized. You know, That's so. pretty great. There, it That's pretty yeah, awesome. Yeah. So
1: it became art, I guess. Sure, sure it did. When did you start to feel... Because uh, like you said offhandedly when you, when you came in and it's true that your audience bigger than their audiences were, you were, you were saying it about um, playing their songs out. What was it like when... With In the relationship between all of you, as as you start becoming Steve Earle, and you're playing theaters, and there's still guys still playing clubs. Was it, it was weird, weird. It, was for uncom- you? it was uncomfortable for me.
0: Um, but I, I championed Towns because I felt like he really needed it. I felt like Guy had it. And to some degree, Guy sort of found his voice <clears throat> as a recording artist when he stopped trying to make records with drums, I think I know that sounds weird, but Dublin Blues beginning with Dublin Blues, man, those records are great. Which is the, the album
1: with Ramblin' Jack and Mahan, the boat boats boats to build, which Boastabil. is to build. He's he's
0: he's getting towards because for me boats to
1: build is a really strong. I remember buying it's very it.
0: acoustic, very acoustic. But but by by Dublin Blues, he yeah. bails on drums altogether, and he's working mostly with bluegrass musicians. And you know Keith Case had been his his, his agent, you know, for a long time. Well, anyway, but, but
1: what did you feel, Steve, when when did you, as it was happening for you, obviously you weren't thinking j- about about those guys. But did you ever have moments when when have a disconnect about the fact that now you were this super famous guy getting written about everywhere, and and those guys? Because there was a period of time before Boats to Build came out, there was a moment where Guy was almost forgotten in the right. world. Did it hit you as odd?
0: Yeah, but but I didn't. You know, I'd seen people. Um, not be as famous as they should be before. I knew that, you know, Tom Waits, you know, sure. had, had Tom, but I, I, I understood the music business. So I didn't understand what I didn't under Sometimes I wish that Guy and Towns had been, the Towns had been somewhere, you know, and not living yes. anywhere, you know, and that Guy had been in LA, stayed in LA rather than been in Nashville. Cause in some ways, I think he would have been more appreciated as a recording artist if he'd stayed in LA. I think, um, he, he, I don't think he he left L.A. on purpose. He, I think he really genuinely hated. It. Of course, he lived in Orange County. That was part of the problem. But he didn't really live in L.A. But but it's not. Um, I I just um, it was uncomfortable for me. But I'd seen it happen before, so I just did everything I could to champion. So you stayed them in every touch. Time you stayed in touch
1: with them during all that. Yeah,
0: I, and, and you know, it was we got to see each other way less because because we've all toured. Yes, you know, so. Um, we reconnected when I got sober and got out of jail. And, um, you know, uh, Towns, you know, we had one right before the wheels came off of my life. I saw Towns quite a bit. He was moved to Nashville by that time and um, just kind of had uh, gotten married. Um, he'd married Janine. And, you know, he'd had the poncho and lefty had happened, so some money had come in. And then he and Janine split up. But he was just... You know, everybody was sent to talk to me at one point or another, and so you know you're in trouble when you get a. I came home from Rip uh, Rip in town, and my wife had come to get me, and we drive up, and Towns is sitting in my living room playing one of my guitars. And you know you're in trouble when Towns Van shows up to give when, you a, a temperance lecture. <laughs> when, when he's so, trying to get you sober. Yeah, yeah, So he said, so he said, you look like shit, and I said I know. He said your arms really look like shit, uh, and I did. I had, I had, you know, I didn't have abscesses, arms. but my arms were swollen because. I'd started shooting speedballs by that time, and you just inject more often when cocaine's involved. And, and I just um, – I said, I know. He goes, you have clean needles? And I said, yeah, which was true. He said, every time? I said, yeah, which is true. He said, okay, man, let me play you this song I just wrote. And he played Marie. Right. Oh, my you God. Know, and, uh, you know, it's – Wow. It, Guy was more – you know, I had to go um, – after he moved to town, I would go see him, you know, once in a while. It didn't happen very often. I, we went to, we all went to the to guy's house in town. I think the first time I was in the house was after Towns' funeral, um, and this is all after mm-hmm. I got sober. You, you know, guy, you know, Towns died within a couple of years. I, I got sober in '94, and I think Towns passed away in '97. I think that's right. And I just, um, you know, I, I would see guy once. Hardly strictly bluegrass started. I could watch well, him at Merle Fest and hardly strictly bluegrass, and I got banned from Merle Fest, so it got down to hardly strictly bluegrass. <laughs> so, so that's when I would see him, and then at the end he got um, sick. You know, he he had he had lymphoma for ten years. You know, and and so I started having to make it a point to go see him, and and, and you I did, and I did at, at, at the end, and and uh, there was a period when I didn't go see guy because. I was trying really hard to stay sober, and he had a, a, a pretty large amount of contempt for twelve-step programs. Right. And there's there's reasons for that. I don't want to get into them because it's his stuff, and I understood it. But but it made you stay but it away. It made it made me. It, well, it, it would have been okay. I hang out with people that use I, I, when they, when I can when I feel like I'm safe, but I didn't feel safe there because he has had so much influence on me in the past. And he did actively try to get me to smoke a joint or well, take a drink. Yeah. And, and I just had to not go for a while. And then I, when I got a little time under my belt and I felt like it, And he also figured out that I think that I wasn't going to come if he kept doing that and he stopped doing it. So we kind of reached a point where I could
1: come around it again. That's nice to hear, man, yeah. that it like – Yeah, each of you was willing to bend a little
0: bit yeah he just it was one he really thought that was wrong for for not getting high you know so it was one of those I guess he had
1: more self-control in a certain way than an addict has or he just didn't care about being an addict I think I think I was an addict addict. but I mean I think I I don't mean self-control in a casual way I mean Addiction, which forces you to not have control, which takes you over,
0: and that group of people—heroin her- s- was the bugaboo—and they're, and they're really, It's the thing was true in other cultures I've been around. The pugs, uh, as long as you weren't doing heroin, you right. were okay. That's what I'm saying. Because heroin then it didn't lead to heroin. Heroin was was Towns' thing at one time, and 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 I think a lot of people thought Towns was going to be okay once he got past that, but he just drank more. Well, you and can't. Yeah, so sure. it's one of those things, and I just. Guy was functioned and worked until the end of his life. So that's that's different. And I wasn't. I didn't. I ended up homeless. Right. So you I ended up in jail. I man. do. I think guy was was an alcoholic. Yeah. But I but I also think he was way more functional than I was. I, would you life been better if he had gotten sober? I think probably. And I think Susanna would would have still been here. And I think all this stuff—it hadn't been for drugs and alcohol. But the fact of the matter is, he functioned. We found a way to make an equilibrium where we could have a relationship at the end of his well, life. Well, that's and nice I'm glad that we did. So,
1: when um <clears throat> when you were around for old number one, you said half demos. Half, you were around for half of it. So for people and who, in all of Texas, for cooking, people who every minute of Texas cooking, for for people who don't know this. And some people don't now. Many don't. Old Number One is one of the great albums of the decade in which it was made. One of the great albums of the last forty years, fifty years now, maybe. Um did you have a sense of it? One of the reasons I started doing this podcast was I'm so fascinated by like these these moments and whether in that in these moments people are aware. Like, did you have a sense when he recorded Desperados? And I know that the song had been around before. But you're in there singing background vocals. Well, did you back- realize you were part? Oh, go ahead, tell me.
0: The background vocals were recorded later. I wasn't around. The track on Desperados is one of the demos that was recorded before I even moved to Nashville, and we just made some overdubs on it, including the vocals, and and that was kind of all that happened. But. I knew that record was going to be important, but it was kind of in, in my world. Because, but it was kind of distorted because where I, before I moved to Nashville, I belonged to a group of people. When's the Guy Clark record coming? You when mean you, you guys rumors, were all looking for I it? I talked to towns. I'd never met Guy, but I could. I talked to towns about when the when the Guy records coming. So, so that one's kind of that one's hard. You know, I, don't, I just um, remember
1: I didn't hear it till I was like twenty. I didn't hear that record till I was twenty one years old. Right. right. And what happened was Michelle Schacht made a record that was an homage to it. You know, right. her short, her, one of her albums had the picture on the back of it of her and Pete Anderson, just like guy on the back of old, old number one. Gotcha. And the shirt. I, yeah, with a, the shirt. It's a painting. Because and Pete it's Anderson. And Susanna's. That's what that's that, that is. amazing. It's not a little So shirt. it was a pain. So, so then uh, Pete Anderson had, played, had produced that Michelle Schacht record and he told me this is all because of old number one. And then I went back and listened to it. I remember hearing it and I remember being like, how the fuck? I'm a music fanatic. All I care about is music. I'm 21 years old. I love folk music. I love country. I, and I had never heard the fucking album because that, of where that was. You know, I'm talking about uh, it had, 1987 it, it, or 88. It you know. had no chance because it was on RCA, and,
0: and RCA had had a long policy of putting the writers that wrote for its publishing company, which Guy and I both wrote for. Under record contracts, and, the and they not doing were, anything for the records. Records were used only for sh- showcasing their songs to other artists. So it that's was, what happened. They they did not totally what happened. They it's just what happened to Steve Young on RCA. Well, Steve Young, uh, what a great songwriter, also, also yeah, so, yes, and, and, which weren't his first records. Did but you know was it was on, a great album? Yeah, but I, how could it not be? It's like it's sort of like guy. My record is a great album because how do you fuck that up? You know, it's like it's it's the life's work of one of the best songwriters that ever walked the planet. Unlike Guitar Town, I was terrified of sophomore slump, so I wanted to write my record all at one point at time, and I wrote the second one all at once to be a
1: record. Well, dude, your first three albums are just an amazing Guy started
0: writing songs when he was in his when in his i think he was in his late 20s by the time he ever wrote a song um i've heard there's two different versions of what's guy's first song people say step inside this house well that's lyle that's what lyle, lyle, says. Lyle, lyle said the guy told him that and yes. that's and that to me that, that may be like <laughs> son house saying that robert johnson went to the crossroads you know it's right. one of those things. cuz that's Cause it's too good to the be first song is that why or? no i just heard guy I, I heard guys say that don't let that don't let the sunshine fool you was his was his first song, years before Lyle knew him. And and trust me, I know about Lyle. love it because of Guy Clark. Yes, and and um, you know, and I'm and I'm I think Lyle's one of the best songwriters oh, alive. And and yes. I just kind of um, but but that but I well, have it. But you
1: don't think that's his first song?
0: I I just have different. I got different information from the same source. He got
1: it from. <laughs> so the point is. Well, you know, I maybe mean, guy was stoned when he said guy it's I smoked a lot, of it. a lot of pot, man.
0: Yeah, you know? <laughs> so, oh, both great. I mean,
1: but either both those songs for yeah. that to be your yeah, first song is yeah. pretty um,
0: um, amazing. Don't let the sunshine fool you. Like as a musicologist, seems more likely to me, simply because. Guy is one of the people that actually went out to Mance Lipscomb's house on a regular basis in Navasota, Texas, and sat around and listened to Mance play. Right. And it's very much him trying to be Mance Lipscomb if you listen to hey it. Hey man, it's I'm that, not gonna
1: argue with you about what the first like I believe you know, I you don't knew the. Know, man, and I just know
0: what he told me and then years later the Wiles so said that and I'm like, wow. That's so interesting.
1: the reason I believe the reason I've always believed it was Step inside this house is the rhyme scheme is an exact. You know, Step Inside This House has this... It, it's very untraditional. It, it feels well, like no, he did an that early in, effort. He did that anyway. It's one of the things
0: I learned from him was the whole concept of a soft rhyme. I heard one of guy's collaborators, somebody that wrote with him at the end of his life, talking about a rhyme of guys in in a song, in Sis Draper. And he's talking about... Um, um, so we... Um, we we stood out there in the yard, hands all full of watermelon, watched him, watched him watched her leave, watched her go, wishing we were on that wagon. And he said, "Yeah, there's just no rhymes in that verse at all." And I said, "Yes, there is. Right. <laughs> there's a big rhyme. It's just it, an incredibly soft rhyme." Right. So, so you know, the yeah, still like unlucky
1: enough to be employed in Delacroix. Those yeah, aren't yeah, really exactly. rhymes. Yeah, yeah, it yeah. just rhymes.
0: It does. And and and, and you know, well, the mind-blowing thing: David only has a song called "Saturday Night and Sunday Morning" that does not rhyme. Anywhere, and I didn't. I I sang it for a year before I realized it doesn't. American
1: Girl doesn't rhyme. Uh, does it? There's a whole collection of a friend no, of mine. American I, Girl Doesn't Rhyme. And I I just uh, <laughs> Petty talked about it in the big that three hour documentary. Cool. Yeah, he just wrote a song that didn't rhyme and it ends up being his first If you're in meter, you don't have to rhyme. It's fascinating. Song songwriters out that. there. you know the form. Here, know the, the form, thing. you can break the form.
0: It, it, like people that, that created free verse, you know, like Walt Whitman is, gets credit for it, and I think that's probably pretty close to true. I think they they were operating under a misconception. And that is, we've discovered that a lot more of Shakespeare rhymes than we thought it did because of pronunciation has changed. So there's a lot of stuff. It's all in verse, just about. I think Romeo and Juliet's the first thing that was all in iambic pentameter, the whole, the whole piece. But basically, there's this weird conceit in Shakespeare. The noble people speak in verse and the... Commenters don't, which is kind of. That's why I'm an Oxfordian right there. <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> that's what I, and I am, oh, but yeah. yeah, yeah. No, I, I believe that, that Edward Devere wrote those plays. You do? And, yeah, absolutely do. And Roseanne hates it. She, oh, she, Rose- is, Rose- she didn't Cash. speak to me for six I or eight months yeah, about that. I think that's just. Uh, we both worship Mark Rylance. Mark Rylance is an Oxfordian. You know? Most it, most of the Oxfordians in the world, an Oxfordian for anybody that isn't familiar with that, is someone that believes that the 17th Earl of Oxford, Ed, Ed, Edward Devere, wrote to play. There was the a movie made about it a few years ago. There's been a, a debate about it for a long time. Mark yes. Twain was an Oxfordian. It's but been been a, a, I'm a Harold a Bloom time. guy, and Bloom really <laughs> roundly rejects that. He absolutely... I, I, I think what Harry Bloom knows a lot about... The plays that doesn't know he knows anything about Shakespeare because yes. nobody knows anything yes, about I'm Shakespeare. Saying, man, I if I'm gonna t- i I've read all those books. Oh, yeah, I, I've too. read
1: every book on both sides of the argument. and I think and um well this brings us to the anxiety of influence, one of my favorite things to talk about, which is how did you break, you know, in trying to write your own songs, how much did you wrestle with the ghost of those guys in trying to create your own thing? It's hard, you know. I mean, um,
0: that's Bloom's I wrote I, with Jerry Jeff my first heroes were like the Beatles and the Rolling Stones and then for some reason I latched under the love and the Spoonful when John Sebastian's first solo albums came out he was my, my you, biggest You know hero. that was my
1: dad's first band, right? Uh, the, uh, I mean, my my dad discovered the Spoonful and Wow! That's dad, right, that's, that's My dad's right. Charles okay. Koppelman.
0: Yeah, uh, so yeah.
1: my dad discovered the Spoonful, I mean, he and um, I guess Eric Jacobson, they could argue about which one was there first but the two of them uh, and Don Rubin found them and so I grew up those records are what well, put me. Th- those records are what like bought us our house. I know those records better than any records in the whole world. I know them chapter and verse. Yes. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah, amazing. To me.
0: Uh, no, they're the American Beatles, not not the band. The band were the American Rolling Stones. But um, no, John, but, but John, John <laughs> that's
1: awesome. No, John Sebastian was one of the. You know, he and Zalynovsky if they could have just kept together. But as all these things happen, and and John probably I don't know. You know, there was a period of time what six years where that guy wrote. The best songs you could possibly write. He wrote beautiful
0: write. songs, and, and but the, he also was a musicologist at his core. He 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 used to he used to like follow Lightning Hopkins around and carry his guitar around the village when he'd come to town to play. His dad, John's father, was a classical harmonica player, and and John, John was a great one of the best harmonica player. players. that's why. But and 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 his father really thought he had him, and he was going to follow in his footsteps. And then the story he, that John tells is that. He accompanied his father down to uh, WNYC because his father was playing on a program there, and Lightning Hopkins was there. And years later, his father said, "That's when I lost you. Oh, that's
1: fantastic! <laughs> really, John told me a story once. I only spent a couple of afternoons with John in my life, but as a gr- like a, when I got a little older, but he told me a story once about playing on a Dylan session, right. which I'm sure he's told you how Bob no, came I, to, I, I guess Bob came to his house. And said, knocks, someone knocks on his door and he answers. You know, John it. was up there before anybody was. After
0: John moved to Woodstock before almost anyone did.
1: And so. I guess Bob knocks on his door and he comes to the door because he was going to play on a session the next day. And Bob says, Tomorrow. Doesn't say anything to him other than, you're going to play harp the best you ever fucking played it in your life. <laughs> <laughs> and then turned around and walked away. That, and just left John that. overnight to, like, fucking stew about well, it.
0: Well, one of the it few things, th- this last divorce, one of the things that I lost that I, that I really wish I had back, the rest of it's just stuff, but I lost a house. We had to liquidate the house in Woodstock, which one of the first, you know, like, I lived here about in New York about a year and a half, and then we got the house... In, in Woodstock, and that's a great way to live, having a place, uh, an apartment in Greenwich Village, and a and a and a house in Woodstock. But but I met Levon Helm before that, and I met Sebastian finally when I moved up there, mainly because Maddie Umanoff you know, basically made sure that we got to know each that's other. Awesome. And all of a sudden, when I'd have a, I'd have one party at Christmas time, I'd make chili and people come over and Sebastian would come in and play my guitars and, and, and you know, go through my guitar collection because he's an archtop freak. And he knew, he knew, um, I've got the last New Yorker special that, that. That Jimmy DeCristo built, and so John played that guitar. He played any any of the other. Well, before we, we get distracted. Let's from when you but mentioned. Knowing him, but, Sebastian was a very very big deal to me because he was one of my very first. I mean, yeah, me too.
1: So. Me too. Actually, no. But what I was going to say is when when uh, when well, we're almost done. When yeah. when. When you were writing songs, you were saying those were influences. So I was asking you, how did you sort of cast off the influence of those two guys when you were writing songs? I, or how I, did you stop wrestling with them? Or are you still ri- – I guess what I'm asking is when you're writing a song like So You Want to Be an Outlaw, which is a Merle Haggard song too, but are you are you, um, still I'm trying to be wrestling way- with that I'm shit? trying
0: to be Waylon Jennings That's what I'm trying to do. And, you know, I, I overcame – Outlaw is an interesting record, and it's going to dictate – it dictates a lot of the way that guy sounds – because I made it with the band, and I have the best country rock band in America right now, I think, and they just are so good. You're saying influences how this album guy sounds. Yeah, it's, and the next record, which is going to be, it's built around a theater piece that I'm involved in at the public theater next year. The core of the songs are about this um Jessica Blank and Eric Jensen have a piece about uh that coal mining disaster that happened upper Big Branch and I wrote the songs for it. I'm going to perform in it. It's sort of a troubadour that powers the narrative oh, along awesome. and and uh it's been a blast cuz Jessica's going to direct it, Oscar was the, uh, was the dramaturge, and it's been a huge experience for me. But but the band is like, I overcame my fear of Fender Telecasters. Yes. As, and, and I just, and, and I always sort of played like Waylon Jennings as an electric guitar player, you know? And so I just kind of surrendered
1: to that. And I think it's... But you, you gotta wait. You just gotta kinda answer okay, me, Do you, nobody do else you still, is doing it right do now. Do you still, those guys are gone, but do you still wonder what they would think of the songs, or do you not?
0: I have no, I, I know what Waylon would think. Waylon Jennings wore a bandana on his wrist every show that he did while I was in jail. And, you know, and, and I just um, – he was incredibly supportive. Um, you know, um, I just don't – guy, I think, could be a little more inflexible. So he had an idea of what Steve Earle was supposed to be. And he wanted me – you know, Towns was the same way. Towns one time, my publishing deal, which I'd had for three years – You know, I had it for a year, and then the company sold, and all of a sudden I had one hundred and fifty dollars a week songwriter draw. But there was no office in Nashville, so I went to San Miguel again and turned my little cabin over to towns. That's when he finally moved to Nashville, and I was going, I was staying with him. You know, checking the traps. Then the deal finally, you know, went away, and I just and I was going to town to do some And I said, he said, where are you going? I said, go look for. a publishing deal I didn't want to get a job and he said oh man you don't need a publishing deal you're not Bob McDill you're Woody Guthrie and I'm like I'm okay with being Bob McDill too but you know don't put that on me and and I'm doing this differently than you did it and and I always was okay with the music business I I I understood what about it was bullshit and I just felt like I wasn't going to be able to keep doing what I was doing at the level that I was trying to do it if I wasn't willing to get a little bit of dirt on
1: it. Well, you honored these guys um, who thought you were supposed to be Woody Guthrie by treating their songs like a part of America and celebrating their songs in that way, man. And that's what I I hear. I hear on these records the faithfulness with which you sing them and... How deep you're going when you're singing them, and I think it's incredibly moving. The Towns
0: record was just solo performances that I added all the instruments later because I was just trying to get back to what I witnessed, which not everybody did. Because um, after Poncho and Lefty, and people, more people knew who he was. He, his powers as a performer were a diminishing. I saw him when he was still one of the best solo performers I ever right, saw. Right, and that's what you captured that. But guy. The acoustic stuff I play just like Guy does. The electric stuff I'm making it a little bit more mine. It's, it it, it feels like a Steve Ray
1: record, but it feels like a record that's heavily honoring Guy. Is there anybody you think carries on this tradition now? I mean, for me, I think Isbell and your son do actually. Yeah, no, I think Justin, Isbell and Justin really carry
0: yeah, it on. Great. I think, they, and for the same reasons they grew up with the same stuff, they grew up together basically. They, you know, they they played together a lot when they were a lot younger. Um, Coulter Wall who's from uh, Canada he's, so he's gr- yeah. incredible Tom Zutat was
1: just telling me about that guy and, 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 yep. yeah, he, he's the he's real deal he's his third
0: record out he's 24 I think maybe the first time I saw him Emmylou Harris and I saw him on a TV show together
1: and we just what, are, I can't imagine I didn't ask Roseanne about him I mean Roseanne must, I imagine if she hears him it'll remind her of everything
0: yeah it, it, it'll it, it'll blow her mind and the other person is a there's, a there's a guy named Logan Ledger who's from San Francisco new record is about to be released I believe at the end of May there's a couple of tracks out out there, one um, of the tracks on the record that's not out yet, he and I wrote together. Because T Bone Burnett called me one day and said, "I'm working with this guy. I need y'all to get together and write because he's kind of stuck." And I said, "He's writing great songs up to now, but, but he's kind of stuck." And I said, "Well, cool. Well, uh, uh, call the office and we'll make an appointment." He goes, "No, you're in Chattanooga tomorrow, right?" And I said, "Yeah." He says, "He'll be up there about oh, two o'clock in the afternoon." So, look, it came up, and we wrote this song before between last you know, question between Sound Check La- and the Game. Last gig. question,
1: man. So. I've heard you say this a few different times. I saw you write it, where you said your one, your biggest life regret, was not writing. That guy said, "Let's write a song together." Yeah. And years passed, but before you answer me, I want to ask it fully. And because uh, what you said was, "Well, time," but 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 man, I mean, you're somebody who. Has made a bunch of you've written about a bunch of mistakes you've made in your life. I'm sure there's a bunch of regrets. Even on your first album, in your first album, you're talking to your kid and saying, "I know I'm going to be away from you a lot." Like you're somebody who's wrestled with a bunch of stuff. For this to be the biggest regret, it it can't just be that schedules got in the way. What were you? What was it about writing a song with Guy that was too difficult for you to deal with?
0: It wasn't. It wasn't that. It was that I. He asked me to do it. He said, "We need to write a song together. Maybe not for, maybe not for us, but for the grandkids." And the deal, and I intended to do it, but I was incredibly busy, and I was going through a divorce, and things were nuts, and and I just didn't get it done. So that's when I don't get something done, I regret it. That's a, that's a big Keep in mind, you're dealing with two people. I was taught by Guy Clark not to co-write, right? And we did not. Well, do That's it. what I'm trying to understand. He, is he, he, if there was something deeper about it. why you didn't? Well, it, well he's through. no, no. I co-write. I co-write with. A few people, like you know, I've co Logan, co- Logan Ledger, yeah, yeah, Logan Ledger, because I was asked to, and I thought it was worth it, and I thought he's really, really, really good. Uh, Miranda Lambert, and I wrote the duet that we sang together on the last record, and, and we're working on another song now. Miranda's a real
1: deal. That She's last record, no joke, of hers I took is my daughter to stunning. see her. Like, I took my daughter to see her at the garden, and the, it was the incredible. Best
0: country music coming out of Nashville right now, besides Chris Stapleton, is all women to me. The stuff that excites me the most, you know, so. And uh, and it's having a hard time getting on the radio, which sucks. Hey,
1: even Amanda Shires made this incredible record. Amanda's, like Amanda's
0: great, and and uh, you know she's and think about Amanda; she's so scary smart. You know, she just went back to school. It's and, insane and how ha- smart Amanda is. I wish I'd done what she did while I, before my brain completely coagulated uh, and just got, gone back to school. You still got but plenty
1: of brains. Yeah, but, um, but you think so? You just didn't write with him because it didn't happen. You don't think there was something about writing with your mentor no. that was. I'm, I'm not. You. I'm
0: not scared of very much when it comes to that kind of artistically, you know. I'm not. I'm. I'm. I've, I've developed um, a healthy fear of monogamous relationships finally and uh, it's, it's taken a lot
1: <laughs> but, but not of um, songwriting but not of songwriting relationship well you shouldn't yeah. all right everybody steve earl you can he's on twitter i don't know if it's you or it's your people on twitter it's my people on twitter just because i don't are I you don't, on instagram I'm, or none of it
0: i'm I, it's all there there's somebody at the office that does all of it for so me so you can
1: find the stuff about steve there but go out and see him perform there's nothing like when steve earl gets deep into it in a show go get this album guy N-Towns, and towns and and look, if you're listening to this and you're young and you don't know the first three Steve O records, go get them. Go and listen to those records. They are, you know, what he's saying about Guy in Towns, there are plenty of songwriters, young songwriters saying the same stuff about him. Thanks for doing this, Steve. Thank you.